Oh, great God, oh, what, a, what a wonderful celebration today is in, in these baptisms. We are reminded again as a church that you save those who are older and those who are younger, and you do it all in the same way, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, we pray for Dawn and for Kelsey and for Dylan. Uh, we know that, that their baptism is not what saves them, and yet it's a wonderful gift that you have given to your church and to the individual believer. And I pray that this day would be, be ingrained in their memory as a celebration of your grace to them. And I also pray, Father, that you would use these baptisms to encourage this church that we would, we would again see in, in this visible way the, the power of the gospel, that you take young and old and by the power of the gospel, because you are gracious and kind and merciful, you unite them to your son by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would bless Dawn and Kelsey and Dylan with great joy in Christ, that you would give them all that they need, and we know that you will as they continue to follow you and trust you, whether it's in Senegal or, or in Milwaukee. We ask you, Father, to, to bless our time together in your word. Uh, we do believe as a church that your word does the work in hearts. It's your word that ultimately leads people to, to want to be baptized as a believer. It's your word that, that convicts us when we, are, when we are caught up in sin. It is your word that reveals to us the glory and the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. You are an awesome, glorious God, and we want to worship you this morning. And we know that we do that as we, we hear and we read and we respond to your word Father, we pray for those among us who are struggling, who are suffering, who are going through great hardships. We pray that you would give them encouragement today through your word and through corporate worship. We pray, Father, that, that those who are weak in faith would be strengthened in faith, that they would see Jesus this morning through the preaching of his word and take heart. We pray, Father, for those who are battling cancer and illness and sickness that not only would you heal them, but that you would use their suffering and their hardships to strengthen and refine them, that Christ would be exalted even in their suffering and hardships and through their suffering and hardships. We pray for us as a church to come alongside and encourage those who are going through various trials. And, and we pray, Father, for those who are celebrating good gifts. May they see everything that is good and right and, and wonderful as a gift from you, their Father in heaven. And Father, we, we pray that that you would be with the, the church universal, that our brothers and sisters scattered throughout the world uh, that are especially going through hardship because they, they are Christians, that they would, they would continue to be bold and proclaim the gospel and that you would protect them and that we would pray for them. And now, Father, as we so often do, as I so often do, I pray that you would overcome my deficiencies as a preacher. You'd bless your people with truth, with nourishment from your word for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, once again, we will be turning to quite a few passages. It's normally our practice to flip through, um, or not flip through, but work through a specific, wow, there are a lot of people in first service. Wonderful. You sure? It was a, I thought it was a good, helpful sermon. Some of you guys want to stay, maybe? No, you're free to go. Oh, and this, oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to do that. That's where I've, there's extra people. Through sixth grade, you can be dismissed if you're in one of those classes up to sixth grade. My fault, I forgot. Um, so uh, this morning, we will again be flipping through the, the Bible a little bit more than normal. We tend to work through a book of the Bible. Uh, our plan is to get into 1 John after this series. Uh, but 
But because of the nature of studying baptism, which is all over the New Testament, and even, even as we draw from the Old Testament, we have to, as we study baptism, move around a little bit. And so this morning's main text and a passage that I'll be referring back to is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So if you would, please turn to it. You'll find it on page 835 in the Pew Bible. And, uh, and that is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now, please be seated. As many of us know, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is often referred to as the Great Commission because it gives the church its marching orders. In the Great Commission, our Lord and Savior, who verse 18 states has all authority, and just to be clear on how much authority he has, it's all authority in heaven and on earth that covers everything. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority, commands his disciples to make disciples. And that is what this is. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea for those who have the gift of evangelism, those who are extroverts who like to talk to people and are not ashamed of of opening their mouths in public. This is a command given from Christ to his church in every generation. I remember after my conversion, getting really, really excited about the Great Commission. The, The parachurch ministry that I was a part of, we often talked about this passage, and I saw it as my next big goal in life. And so I was a washed up uh, wannabe athlete. I, I liked having things to do. Tell me what the, the mission is. I want to accomplish it. And so I made the Great Commission part of my personal mission. And, and I've talked about this before, but it, one of my goals was to knock on every single dorm room uh, on the campus of UW-Whitewater. I didn't cover all of them, I don't think, but I covered a lot of them and try to convert every single person that I could convert to Christ. And, and I, Honestly, I had some faulty views of conversion and definitely some prideful views of my own abilities to, to win people into the kingdom. And so that's, that's been sanctified a little bit. But, but still, uh, I think that we should get excited about the Great Commission. As we hear these, these words again, if we're familiar with them, we can kind of get, oh yeah, the Great Commission, go make disciples. But, but these are the, the commands given to us from our Lord and Savior. And, and they're exciting. We should get excited about making disciples. To make a disciple is to make what we already are, disciples of Jesus Christ. And some of us say, well, I don't know if I should really make anybody anything like me. And, and so maybe we want to get rid of some of those bad habits or some of those things that we struggle with. And, and yet the, the call is clear, make disciples. We're disciples, we're to replicate ourselves, make more disciples. And so making disciples starts with introducing someone to Christ, telling them who Jesus is. He is Lord and Savior. He is the God of the universe, the Son of God who came in flesh. And we are to tell them what he has done. Not only has he come, he has died on the cross to make atonement for our sins, and he was raised from the dead so that all who repent and believe would not just be forgiven of their sins, but brothers and sisters, we're not just going to be floating around spiritually with, with the angels playing harps in heaven we will be raised just like he was raised. And so we're to introduce people to this awesome God that we serve, that we trust in, that we follow who he is and what he has done. Discipleship officially begins when a person comes into relationship with Christ. 
Disciples are those who trust in and obey Jesus, who hear the gospel that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they believe it. Disciples are those who know that Jesus is the only way. He is the truth, and he is the life, and that no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through Christ because he is God. And so it's quite the mission that Christ has given us. We have been given a task of eternal importance. We're not to waste our lives living to build our own kingdom, but we are to build the kingdom. And the way that we build the kingdom is by making disciples. God is after people. He's not after land. He's not after things. He's after people, hearts, souls. And it should be exciting to us. And yet, as exciting as it is, the Great Commission can be hard. It's hard because we just struggle to live the Christian life ourselves, and now we're to represent Christ to other people. And so some of us just want to keep our mouths shut about following Jesus because we're struggling to follow Jesus ourselves. And we think, who are we to open our mouths and invite other people to follow Jesus when it looks like we're doing a terrible job? And so some of us struggle with the Great Commission because we don't want to open our mouths. Maybe we're, we're struggling with, with somebody looking down upon us, thinking we're fools or crazy because we follow Christ. It can also be costly if you truly are committed to following Jesus and making disciples, it's going to affect you. It could mean the, the cost of certain relationships. Not on your end, it's not that you're trying to end these relationships, but, but if you love somebody, and not just their house is burning up, but their soul is in danger of burning up forever, and you don't open your mouth and tell them about Jesus, you don't, you don't really love that person. And so if we love people, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, at some point, and, and we say this often, winsomely, not in some way that comes across like you're an arrogant jerk, but in a winsome, loving way, you're going to open your mouth at some point and say, you know what? You need Jesus. I, I care about you. I care about you, mom. I care about you, dad. I care about you, brother. I care about you, sister. I care about you, nephew or niece. I care about you, coworker. I care about you, boss. And I have to tell you, I've been working with you. I've been living, you know, with you if you're my son, whatever, however the relationship is. And, and I'm burdened for your salvation. Somehow, in your own unique, God-given way, you need to communicate, if you love that person, the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. And so it can be costly because some of these people that we tell about Jesus to, well, they're going to think we're crazy and stupid. They're going to see us as, as, as reminders of, a, of, of the importance of living a holy life, whatever it might be. They, the reality is the Great Commission can be costly and it will require sacrifice. It's going to, at some level, at some point, affect your pocketbook. You have a greater plan and purpose in life than just you living comfortably the American dream. It's to make disciples. Your Lord and Savior, the King Jesus Christ, has commanded you to do it. And so it can be hard, it can be costly, and it will require sacrifice, this Great Commission. But the one who has all authority, who has commanded us to make disciples, also includes within the Great Commission this promise in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just thinking about that, oftentimes we go to this when somebody's suffering. I did it in my pastoral prayer earlier. May, may those who are suffering know that God is with them. We, we remind them that God has not forsaken them. And, and yet here, the, the promise of God's presence is built into this, this call to go and make disciples, the Great Commission. And as we look at the passage... The Great Commission begins with a command to make disciples, and it's given to us by the one who has all authority, so we can't wiggle our way around it. And not only that, the command, this passage, includes the promise that the one who calls us to make disciples will always be with us. And then in between the command and the promise, Jesus uses three words to tell us how we are to accomplish the mission to make disciples. I love how clear and how faithful Scripture is in just telling us what to do. 
We do it by faith and we don't do it to earn our salvation. But, but it really, if you read the Bible in context, you read it in chunks and not just one verse at a time, which is, is what we aim to do, well, then you see it's pretty clear. So how do we do it? And, and there's been lots of books that have been written about how to make disciples and for good reason, you know, because we need to think through some difficult things at times when it comes to discipleship. But here in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us how to do it. We go, we baptize, and we teach. Go, baptize, teach. And so this brings us to one of the horizontal significance of baptism. Baptism is part of how the church makes disciples. In order to obey our Lord who calls us to make disciples, we will need to baptize disciples. Baptism is part of the Lord's discipleship process. It's not that a bunch of people in the early church got together and said, you know what, what are we going to do with these people? How do we make this official? How do we recognize that they're disciples? Let's just bring them underwater and bring them back up. That sounds like a fun initiation, right? Let's do it that way. The Lord is the one who has commanded us to make disciples, and he's the one who has commanded us to baptize disciples. It's part of his process. We're instructed to go, and as we go, whether it's to Africa, to work, to school, or to church, we're to proclaim Christ. We're to share the gospel. We're to open our mouths. Why? Because that's who we are. We're Christians. That's our number one identity. You might, you might think of yourself as an American, a male, a female, a child, an athlete. What are all these, little, these, these other little identif- identifiers for you? They must submit to this one great identifier. You are a Christian. And so what do you think about? What bubbles up out of you when you talk? Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. That is your identity. You are in Christ. You're a Christian. And so as you go, you're talking about Jesus. Some people go to Africa like the Creeches. Others go to Brazil like the Hartmans. And some of us go to work here in Milwaukee. And and as we do this going, we are to tell people that Christ is Lord, that he died to save sinners. And as we do this, as we go and we open our mouths and we tell people about the gospel, some of them will, to our surprise, repent and believe and trust in Christ. And it's wonderful. Wow. I mean, it happens and we get surprised. Like, whoa, I I was just part of of how God brought this person into the kingdom of God. Wow. Like, like this isn't how God has always worked. But but I think it's exciting. So we're like, whoa, I got to be the instrument that God used to, to help bring somebody into the kingdom. It was God who did it, but I got to be there on the front lines. And then what? What's next? What should be done with those who believe? Well, Christ tells us in this passage, we're to baptize them. Baptism is how God has ordained disciples to make their faith in Christ public. It gives the believer, the church, and the world something to look at. Because remember, there's three parties at work in a baptism. There's the one who's being baptized, the ones who are baptizing, and they're representing the church. And so the church is one of the parties. And then the other party is God, who is over all, who's, who's, who's officiating in, in that sense this baptism that we're witnessing. So there's three parties in this baptism. In baptism, the church says, we have an announcement. We have an announcement. This person in the water is a disciple. They are someone who trusts in and follows Jesus. And in baptism, the believer says, hey, everyone, listen up. I'm a disciple. I trust in and follow Jesus. And so baptism is not like a graduation ceremony. If anything, that would be the Christian's funeral. Baptism is is like the first day of school when things are just getting started and there's some excitement in the air especially for those people who love trig and calculus and AP bio. Like, hey, yes, I got all my books. This is exciting. My locker's clean. I got the organizer. Not that I was one of those people. I was more excited about seeing friends and, and making friends. But, but, but that's the, the, the reality of what baptism should really be like. It's, it's just the start of something exciting. 
Because baptism makes faith visible and it makes discipleship official. Now, yes, people can be and are disciples before they're baptized. We, we talked about that last week. Baptism isn't what saves. And yet here's this official means by which the, the church is to mark those who are disciples, to, to, to point out, hey, this one's, this one's a Christian. Now, we, we sometimes don't think about baptism this way for various reasons, and I tried to cover that a few weeks ago. Uh, many of us have maybe been given a, a lower view of baptism. We don't want to make it too important like other groups of Christians or, or the Catholic Church. We don't want to make it too important. But as we read through Scripture, and, and though there, are, there aren't a, a, a bundle of, of passages that are, are at length going into baptism, you, you see baptism either referenced or brought up at, at various places, and we'll see that again. And so baptism is significant. It's important. And part of the, the sermon series on baptism is, is aiming at helping us as a church reclaim some of the significance, the importance, the richness of what God has for us in baptism. And I saw the, this richness on display before me during my first trip to Albania. Uh, as many of you know, we have a partnership with uh, a, an Albanian church, and we originally partnered with a, a church planting movement. We still have that partnership, but we focused and shifted more of our resources to Disciples Church in Tirana, Albania. Pastor Erlind and, and his wife Claudia are part of that, uh, that church. Uh, on my first trip, I was standing there on the shores of the Adriatic Sea, looking at 20 or so Albanians that had started gathering together on the beach, knowing that five of these, these Albanians would be baptized. It turned out that one kind of, he was on the fence and he made a last minute decision. So there might've been six, if I remember right, that were baptized that day in the sea. And, and I was watching them kind of congregate. It was a, it was a windy day, a colder day. Albania is a, a warmer climate, med med Mediterranean climate. Um, but it was, it was windy, it was cold. They kind of huddled together to keep warmth and, and to talk a little bit. And I remember as I was making my way from kind of like the, the, the wood, wooded area that we were camped in and, and walking towards the beach, I, I just started to think about the significance of what I was about to witness. I knew that this was, these were the first baptisms within this church. Uh, Pastor Eddie, who is the, the, the man who um, started this church planting movement in Albania, is the pastor of this church, and we were talking about um, the significance of th these baptisms. And so I was pausing just to kind of soak it in, take a mental, right now, in my mind's eye, whatever that phrase means, I think I'm using it accurately, uh, I can picture that scene. A bunch of Albanians gathered together, me standing there, slowly making my way towards them, and just thinking about how important uh, what I'm about to witness was. And uh, as, I, as I stood there, I remember uh, somebody coming behind me and putting their arm, not on my shoulder, but on my back. Because if you know Eddie, uh, I'm a giant in Albania. Eddie's he's kind of average, maybe on the smaller as far as height size. And so he didn't wrap his arm over my shoulder. He just put it on my back. And uh, I won't try to imitate his Albanian accent. Uh, I'll tell you what, what the gist of, of what he said to me was. He said, Brother Luke, this is a big day, and it's an important day for our church. And so I nodded and listened, and he went on to tell me that in Albania, people don't take someone seriously about being a Christian until they get baptized. He said that many Muslim families don't even mind if their family members go to a Christian church, or even if their family members or friends profess to be Christians. And think about that. Muslims letting their kids go to evangelical Christian churches and even 
being somewhat okay with hearing that their, their children are Christians. Now, the, in Albania, the culture, the, the Muslim culture is a little bit different than what some of us are, are maybe more familiar with in other countries. Uh, they were a former communist government, and so it's, it's kind of like a free-for-all in some sense, but they, they're really, many are drifting back to their Muslim roots and, and claiming to be Muslims. Uh, the reason why they, they are okay with their family members or friends going to a church or even maybe professing to be Christians is because they think that it's probably just going to be a phase that they're going through and, and it, it's going to pass. But what they are not okay with is baptism because once someone gets baptized, their family and friends know that they are serious now about following Jesus, that they're, they're actually taking Christianity seriously. Baptism, they know, is a is in some sense a, a setting aside, a, a rejection of their old religion, whether it be Islam or Albanian orthodoxy. And it's a public embrace of, of biblical Christianity. And for this reason, the men being baptized that day by Eddie were knowingly risking rejection by their family and friends. It wouldn't probably be physical, it wouldn't be violent, but in some sense, they would be separating from their family in their baptism. Baptism would make them no longer secret Christians going through a religious phase, but public Christians who were committed to Christ and to his church. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is how it was in the early church, and it is how it is in areas where the church is persecuted today. It is baptism that publicly marks a former Jew or Muslim or animist or Hindu as being a Christian. Baptism draws a line in the sand. Though most of us have grown up in the church and many of us have been blessed to grow up in Christian families where baptism uh, is not strange and we talk about it often. I'm, I'm talking with my boys about baptism and its significance. They see it here and then we talk about it at home. Well, scripture teaches us that, that it is believer's baptism and, and not the sinner's prayer or a church confirmation that, that is the means by which a believer says, hey, I'm a disciple. And it, it's the means by which a church that is baptizing that believer says, yes, this one is a disciple. And so church, if we don't teach those who profess to be disciples to be baptized, and if we don't baptize those who repent and believe the gospel, then we're missing one of the crucial steps that Jesus gave to us in making disciples. Without baptism, the discipleship process is, in a sense, incomplete. In order to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us to make disciples, we need to baptize disciples, and we need to be teaching about baptism because it's part of the Great Commission. It's part of making disciples. I think there's something else here that we need to consider too in Matthew 28, verse 19. So after we share the gospel and after we baptize someone who believes the gospel, Christ says that we are to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. So it's evangelize, baptize, catechize. Evangelize, proclaim Christ, baptize, baptize them in Christ, and then it's teach them all the things that Christ has commanded. Evangelize, baptize, catechize. That's the process of discipleship. When the church baptizes someone then, we're, we're, we're not just dunking them underwater and bringing them back up. We're, we're, in a sense, committed to teaching that person that we baptize to observe all that Christ has commanded. Discipleship doesn't end at baptism, it's just the beginning. And so church, when we baptize someone, we're, we're not just identifying a disciple, we are actually identifying someone that we need to continue to disciple. I want us to be thinking about this when we baptize someone. This is part of the horizontal significance of baptism. When we baptize someone, uh, it's, it's almost as if we're making an announcement. Hey, anybody looking to encourage and help somebody grow as a disciple? Uh, sometimes people will say, hey, is there anybody in the church that I can meet with and read the Bible with? 
to help them grow. You know, I've, I've been a Christian for a while. I really want to help people grow and mature in Christ. And, and a man will ask me that. Or, or a woman will send me an email and say, hey, are there any other young women in the church that I can meet with? Well, it's almost as if in baptism we're saying, here they are, right here. You're looking for somebody to pour your life into, to, to, to teach about uh, the, the gospel and, and to help them grow in Christ. Well, in baptism, we're identifying those people to the church. These are disciples. Help them grow Baptism points out to the church who we are to be teaching all that Jesus commanded us to teach and, and, to, and to do. And of course, we do that with the word. And so in our corporate worship gathering, we sing songs that, that teach us the word, that contain the word. When we pray, we're praying truths of scripture. When we gather together to, to hear the sermon, we're reading scripture and we're seeking to unpack the meaning of scripture. In baptism, we're, we're saying, we, we don't just think you're a disciple, we're we're going to help you grow as a disciple. We're going to teach you all that Christ commanded, which means we're going to teach you what the Bible says, because that's where we find what Jesus has commanded. We don't find that in our own head. We don't come up with clever things that, that we think Jesus would agree with us with, and that those are the things that we are committed to teaching somebody. We teach them what the Bible says, because that's Jesus's words right there. It's all breathed out by God, and we're to teach them what God has commanded. And so we're going to teach you, if you're baptized here, what the Bible says about God. We're going to teach you what the Bible says about you. We're going to teach you the hard truths that, that are sometimes difficult to wrestle with and understand. And we're also going to teach you the easy truths that are especially wonderful and sweet that we, we go to often. Uh, and, and we're going to teach you how to be a disciple that makes disciples. And this moves us into a second horizontal significance to baptism. In Ephesians 2.19 we are told that because of the gospel, we Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, God's word says that as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christian, when you became a Christian, there was a change in your citizenship. Yes, if you have a passport, it still says whatever country you're a citizen of. But the reality is, because of the gospel, you have been given another passport. You are a citizen in another country. Now, when you die, your citizenship in whatever country you're a citizen of will expire. It will be over. And yet, if you're a Christian, that citizenship in heaven never expires. So this is the great and grander citizenship that goes across and, and supersedes all other citizenships. Christ rescues us from the kingdom that we were born into, the kingdom of darkness, evil, and destruction, and he brings us into a new kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of light. And we are now by grace because of the cross, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have citizenship in heaven. That's a glorious truth to remember, especially as politics get heated and we should be doing whatever we can to make an impact for, for good in this country. And yet the reality is that, that our citizenship is in heaven. And we need to remember that when we're dealing with other believers who might not always agree with us when it comes to, to earthly politics. We are citizens of heaven. And when we become Christians, we give our allegiance to a new king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who has freed us from slavery to sin and made us citizens in his heavenly country. It's all wonderful, but what does citizenship have to do with baptism. Here's the connection. Baptism is how the church affirms someone as a citizen in God's kingdom. 
Notice, and this is important, I did not say that baptism is how the church makes someone a citizen in God's kingdom. Baptism doesn't do that. Remember the, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. It's so revealing. There's so much truth. And I love how Jesus interacts with Nicodemus in the passage. Uh, in that passage, Jesus says that someone must be born into the kingdom of God. Or to be more clear, they must be born again into God's kingdom. As Jesus makes clear in John 3, being born again is not a work of man, but a work of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who makes someone a citizen in his kingdom. He's the one who does that. And he's given the local church the authority to affirm that he has made someone a citizen in his kingdom. And so we're, we're coming along afterwards. The Holy Spirit moves as he pleases, like the wind. That's how Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in John 3. It's a beautiful picture. All of a sudden, no, no, no change, no conversion, no change, no conversion. They're living for themselves, and all of a sudden, boom. For whatever reason, the Lord chose that day to make them a new creation. They didn't plan it. They didn't, they didn't go through all these steps. It was the Holy Spirit who brought them into the kingdom of God. And the church is to go afterwards and say, yeah, yeah, you bear all the marks of a citizen of God's kingdom. We affirm that you are a citizen in God's kingdom. And the way that the local church does this is by affirming citizens, this affirming of citizens is by baptizing them. In baptism, the church is affirming their citizenship in heaven. Now, two places where we see Jesus delegating this type of authority, because for some of us, like, wait a second. You know, we came from maybe a, a, a background with, with a church that was so domineering, so, so uh, in control. It was as if the church was in control of someone's salvation. And some of us are very sensitive to any time where we talk about the church having a role in, in a believer's life. And, and so it needs to be clear to us that, that I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I have no desire to have more authority or more power in the church. This is coming to us from God's word. And we see Jesus delegating this type of authority to the church in places like Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Now, Matthew 16, 19 is one of the most controversial, highly debated passages in all of Scripture. We won't go into all of it, but the reason it is is because Catholics point to it and say, this is where the papacy began. Jesus made Peter the first pope in this passage, is what they believe and teach. Uh, that's not what we Protestants believe. And so I'll, I'll get into a little bit of, of how we understand this passage and, and how we apply it. Uh, but, but I won't be able to get into all of that. But this is one of those highly discussed, and, and uh, it, it was part of the Reformation, of the Protestant Reformation. In Matthew 16, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says that God the Father has revealed all of this to Peter. And so it wasn't that Peter was all of a sudden smart enough that he put all the clues together. Oh, remember when he, he did that? Remember when he did that over there, that miracle over there? Remember that, guys? I figured out he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, it, it wasn't Peter that figured it out. It was God who, who showed these things. The Holy Spirit revealed them to Peter. And so he makes this confession. And it's really a confession that every Christian makes. There's nothing especially unique about this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after he makes that confession, Jesus tells Peter this in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And Jesus wasn't making Peter the first pope here. He was giving Peter the authority to admit people into the kingdom. Well, you say, well that sounds like a lot of authority. Admitting people into the kingdom. And here's how he does that. Here's how we all do that. By preaching the gospel. 
The gospel is the key that opens the door of heaven to sinners. Think about it. Who is the first one who, who gets to stand up and proclaim the gospel in some official sense? Peter, Acts 2. And as he does it, he has the privilege of, of welcoming 3,000 people into the kingdom of God who respond that day by believing the gospel, then being baptized. Wow. Yeah, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom that day. Peter was, was called to and given the, the responsibility and the privilege of preaching the gospel. And that's, that privilege is extended to all Christians who proclaim the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we're, we're opening the door to heaven. All who believe it can enter into. We have the keys, church. Preach the gospel and the doors of heaven are wide open. And yet we're not the one who brings the people in, are we? As much as sometimes we want to, especially if we have non-believing children, we just want to make them Christians. We want to shake Christianity into them. We want to just, like Paul, we would say, I'll be accursed if you'll save them, Lord. Just, I'll make a deal with you. When we're burdened for somebody's salvation that we've been evangelizing for so long and winsomely and lovingly and patiently, we want to just make them Christians. And yet it's not we who actually brings them into the kingdom. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. The Holy Spirit brings to life those who hear the gospel and believe it. And, and Jesus says in this passage that Peter has the authority to bind and loose. What does that refer to? It, it refers to Peter having the authority to make judgments on behalf of Christ. Peter is not Christ. He's not sitting on the throne of Christ. But he has been given, and this again, and I'll, I'll show this more clearly in, in a few moments, this same authority is given to the church. And it's authority that that the local church has even today. And we can see this in Matthew 18, so just a few chapters later, where this similar language is, is used. Again, it's a very controversial passage. It, it lays out the process of church discipline, but I, I find so much comfort in it because it's not up to us to figure out how to deal with somebody who professes to be a believer, who's a member of the church, and yet refuses to, to repent and live in accordance with the gospel. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I find it also interesting that oftentimes this is quoted just in prayer. Like people say, well, if two or three of us are gathered, you know, here we are, we're praying, it's going to happen when the context of that is church discipline. So I don't know if people that use this verse are thinking, hey, we're talking about church discipline, and so let's pray. Uh, but that's just a little glory trail. Maybe you'd call it a rabbit trail that, that comes to mind when, when I think of these verses. So after laying out the biblical process of church discipline in this verse, Jesus in verse 18 again speaks about binding and loosing on earth and in heaven. And, and whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Uh, this is the language of the keys. And, and it's strange again to us because we don't normally speak this way or think this way, but, but so often you think about it, there, there is a delegation of authority in our everyday life. Bosses delegate certain authority to their, uh, their employees. 
parents will often delegate authority to the oldest child. Sometimes maybe they shouldn't uh, when, when they're going away and they, they trust the oldest child to watch the other uh, younger siblings. Uh, there's, there's this delegating of authority, and, and that's what's going on in these passages. Jesus is delegating his authority to first the disciples, and then that is passed on to the local church. Uh, think about it. Jesus is raised from the dead. He walks among his people and, and does some more teaching, and then he's, he's ascended after that. He's, he's raised, not just here, but ultimately up into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. And so how does he rule and how, does he, how, how do we see the kingdom at work visibly this side of heaven? Well, we see it in the life of his people in the church. And in this passage, we see that clearly this binding and loosing includes the authority to make judgments as to who is a citizen of God's kingdom and who is not. The church, having gone through the process, is to say to that, that this person who's unrepentant is, is like a Gentile or a tax collector. That, that's not to say they, they hate them or they're to, 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 to shun them. It's to say that we, we cannot recognize that person as a Christian. And that's what happens in church discipline when somebody is removed from membership. We say, we love you, we care about you, we're burdened for your salvation. And based on your repeated uh, unrepentant heart and the way that you're living your life and you're not repenting, we can no longer affirm that you're a Christian. And so we have to remove you from membership. It's not a hateful thing. It's a last opportunity for us as a church to warn that person of the danger, the destruction they're headed towards. And in this passage, we see that, that there's this this authority that, that Christ has given to his church to make these judgments. They're hard. They're, we've had to do this as a church. It is the hardest part about pastoral ministry is leading the church through this process because the church is a part of it. But in this way, the local church serves as something like an embassy in the kingdom of God. In his book, Going Public, Bobby Jameson writes, an embassy declares its home nation's interest to the host nation. And it protects the citizens of the home nation who happen to be visiting the host nation. As an embassy, the church is subject to the authority of its home nation, the kingdom of Christ. And he talks about how our constitution as an embassy is, of course, the word of God. And so we don't come up with our own, uh, our own means of, of, of life in the kingdom of God. We are, we are following his word. We are in obedience to his word. Well, he goes on to write, Of course, the church does not make anyone a citizen. We become citizens of the kingdom through faith in the king. Yet an embassy does have the authority to formally affirm one's citizenship. If you're traveling abroad and your passport expires, the U.S. Embassy can renew your passport, officially validating your claim to be an American citizen. This is precisely the kind of authority Jesus has granted to the local church. The local church hears a confession, considers the life of the confessor, and by including or excluding that person, the church delivers a judgment to both the church and to the world that bears the authority of heaven. Now, having said this, the reality is, is sometimes the embassy gets it wrong. And we've, we've walked through that as a church. We baptize somebody that has a, a clear profession of faith, even is demonstrating what we think is, is real fruit of the Holy Spirit working in their life. And then sometime later, they're in open rebellion and they reject the gospel. So we, we didn't make them a Christian when we baptized them. We affirmed as best as we could tell based on their profession and their life and their commitment to Christ, they're a Christian. Then it turns out later on that it wasn't true. Or maybe, and this has happened as well, and this is a wonderful thing, that person does wander from Christ. And then later on, they, they come back. We don't baptize them again. We say, praise God. Look, the Lord has brought you back, brother. The Lord has brought you back, sister. 
In baptism, the church makes a judgment. We affirm that as best as we can tell, based on a credible profession of faith and what we've seen in a person's life, that person that we're baptizing is a citizen of heaven. In baptism, we are publicly endorsing a person's citizenship in God's kingdom. In this way, we, we might want to think about baptism as, as the Christian's passport, because just as a passport affirms someone's citizenship in their home country, baptism affirms a person's citizenship in God's kingdom. This is also why we don't baptize somebody who comes to our church and has already been baptized as a believer. Uh, we are one embassy, and God has blessed this world with many embassies. And so if somebody has been baptized as a believer, we don't say, well, you've got you've to experience our baptism. It's better. It's warmer. It's nicer. Well, we, we've got this, this, this cool tub that we got from Menards. That's a horse trough. Uh, were you baptized in a horse trough? We do it our way. No, no, we don't, we don't, we're just another embassy, part of the, the universal church and so we recognize a believer's baptism from another church. Now, it's important that we connect the head and the heart here because all of these things, and, and there's a danger here whenever we're, we're looking at a, a topic or a category, especially one like baptism, we miss it. Like, okay, what does this mean for us? How is this helpful in the Christian life? Because it serves a purpose and, it, and it's a blessing, baptism. Well, here's the connection here that I want to make to the church affirming your citizenship in heaven. Sometimes we really, really struggle with doubt. You know, we, we're pursuing holiness and we're reminded over and over and over again that we still sin. And, and it's good to pursue holiness. It's right. God's law is, is beautiful and it leads to life and to growth and it glorifies God as we obey his commands. It's an act of love as we obey. And yet sometimes we believers can really, really, really question our salvation and God has, has given us the church and one another to assure us. Sometimes we need to hear somebody say, you know what? I've seen you, brother. I've seen you, sister, in Christ, battling, fighting your own sin, trusting the Lord through the trials that you have faced. You know what? Not that I'm God and I can see in your heart, but everything that I see in your life says you are not just a Christian. You, you're solid. You love Jesus. You trust in him. You obey him. And in baptism, we're given that, that visible reminder. And the church is saying, you know what? Yes, you're one of us. You are a citizen, just like we are in God's kingdom. And sometimes we need that. Again, God has given his people really only two visible displays of the gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're rich and they're full of all these vertical and horizontal significances that we're to mine and to use, not only for our own good and blessing, but to be a blessing and a good to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so some of you may have the, the great joy and opportunity to witness somebody's baptism and then be talking with them, be praying with them, and they're struggling with their, their assurance. They're doubting whether or not they're a Christian. And you might be able to draw from this, I saw you. I saw you stand up before the church and say, I am a Christian. And yes, you're going through this battle, this hardship, whether it's with sin or with some health issue, I, and you draw from their baptism and you, you point them back to their baptism and say, you, you made this public declaration and I believed it then and I believe it today, brother. I believe it today, sister. You are a Christian. You are a citizen of, God, of God's kingdom. And so there is a, a heart purpose for baptism and in this truth of the, the church affirming our citizenship in heaven. Yes, we are the ones who profess faith in Christ. It is, it is not somebody else who has to profess faith in Christ for us or must do that. We are the ones, and yet we need each other at times to encourage us and to remind us that we truly are Christians, especially when we struggle with doubt or some great trial in our life. 
And this brings us to a third and final horizontal significance to baptism. It will be the shortest. Baptism unites Christians in Christ's church. In Ephesians 4, Paul, calling for the church to maintain unity, writes, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And obviously the word that's repeated over and over and over again is the word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And I find it really interesting because I think Paul's point is made without baptism. I mean, there's one body. We're, we're the body of Christ. There's one spirit. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in all of us. There's one hope. We are all hoping, resting, trusting in Jesus. There's one Lord. We've all submitted as Christians, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one faith. We have the same faith. Some of us have greater faith. Some have weaker faith. You could just skip baptism. There's one God. He's our God. And yet Paul, urging the, the local church to maintain and pursue unity because, of, because God has already united them, includes baptism in this passage. And, and I believe that one of the reasons he does this is because that is what baptism pictures, not only our union with Christ, but our union with God's people. Because remember, it's not just you and Jesus. This Christian life thing is not just you and Jesus. It's you, Jesus, and Jesus' covenant people. You, you, you don't come into a covenant community of one or of even four, Father, Son, and Spirit. Remember, he's one God in three persons. And you... You come into this covenant community with all of the saints who have gone before you, all the saints that are alive today and all the saints that will come after. You are part of this company of saints, the church, the universal church. And baptism reminds us of this unity. Our baptism reminds us of the truth that we are united to Christ and to one another as members of Christ's body. In this way, our baptism is another call for us to maintain unity. After all, every Christian is equally united to Christ. And those who are in union with Christ are in union with each other. So whatever our background, our skin color, our age, our gender, our politics, our preferences, whether we are from a Jewish or a Gentile background, we are church, one in Christ. We, we looked at this last week, uh, and, and it's helpful to look at this again. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the point of this passage is not to remove all of the unique and good distinctions that God has created between men and women, uh, or the unique diversity that exists among us as, as human beings made in God's image. The point of this passage is that, that, that it's teaching us that we Christians are united. We are joined together in one body in Christ's church. And therefore, man-made divisions, wrongful attitudes, ideas that we are superior to, to somebody with a, a different skin color or from a different background or from a different country, they must not remain among us. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. These verses teach unity within diversity. And again, Paul, what does he draw from? Baptism. He didn't have to include baptism in here. But in two passages in which he's calling for the church to be unified, he brings up baptism. And so from this, we can conclude that baptism is, is another way that we can pursue unity as a church. It binds the one individual Christian to the many other Christians. It's an outward sign. It's a show that, that, uh, to, to show the relationship that an individual Christian has with Christ and with his church. So there is unity, and baptism displays that. Uh, 
I, I think it, it, it's probably true if you're like me that you don't often think of baptism when you're in a conflict with another Christian. You're now like, hey, you know, you said this, or I said this, or I didn't mean to do, do this, and all of a sudden you're like, baptism, that solves it right there. You know, that, that's probably not your go-to uh, thought when you're in conflict with other Christians. But I want to encourage you because Paul, Paul uses baptism to think about that. So church, when you're going through a conflict, whether it's a, a Christian in, in your local church, or a Christian in another local church, think about baptism. Think about how you have been united to Christ. And this Christian, if they've been baptized, has, has gone through that same picture of their union with Christ. And so baptism is another piece of the puzzle to pursue unity for us as a church. We live in a world, and this has invaded the church, where there, there can be so many things that divide us. So many things that divide us. And, and I'm of the mindset that we need to look for whatever we can to help us stay united in the church. And so if baptism, according to scripture, is one way that we can pursue unity together, well then we should use that one, that this additional way that God has called us to pursue unity. So in summary, scripture teaches us that God has given baptism not only vertical significance, but horizontal as well. Baptism is part of how the church makes disciples. Baptism is how the church affirms someone as a citizen in God's kingdom. And baptism unites Christians within Christ's church. As I said in the previous two sermons, my hope, church, is that by looking closer at baptism, we will have a greater appreciation for our own baptism, and we will better see the importance and purpose of baptism in the life of this church. Baptism matters. doesn't save, but it's significant. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your word. Uh, we, need, we need to understand it. We need to believe it. We need to obey it. And as we have studied baptism, and we will consider baptism one more time next week and some of the things that come up when we talk about baptism and, and how to navigate them. Uh, we, we pray for humility. We, we recognize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have not been baptized as believers within uh, our, our fellowship. We're part of community groups and, and different ministries, and we love them. And so as we talk about these things in community group and, and um, we, we explain these things, we want to be gracious, we want to be winsome, we want to be loving. Uh, we, we want you to be the one who reveals the, the importance of believers' baptism and, and what it means and, and how you use it for their good and, and for the church's good. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would use your word in the life of this church to continue to make us like Christ. We truly want to accomplish the mission that you have given to us to make disciples. We pray for your help in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.